0: Have you ever purchased a lottery ticket, spent a few dollars to buy the daydream, what if I didn't have to worry about money anymore? I think it's a pretty understandable daydream to desire, that security that comes with limitless money, limitless wealth, or maybe your dream was to live forever, to never be sick, well, These are the two founding principles in delving into alchemy, that ancient embryo of chemistry where learned scholars attempted to turn one metal into another or to find some sort of philosopher's stone that when heated with other elements could get you those metals or even if you rubbed the stone on your skin could transmit to you those powers of longevity and eternal life. It's uh, certainly an understandable thing to desire. And to the ancient alchemist, why wouldn't it be possible? Well, in fact, we have, as humans, transmuted mercury into gold in 1924 using electricity, in 1941 using nuclear power. And today on Conspiracy History, we're going to talk about how in the year 79 BCE, It was done using molten magma from Mount Vesuvius, ancient Rome. Now, the history of alchemy is a little cloudy, as one might expect from any science that started 5,000 years ago. Uh, To to make matters worse, not just being the ancient origins of chemistry, those who practiced alchemy in the ancient times were secretive of their works. They didn't write them down clearly. Uh, Everything written was in a cipher, a code, or pictogram, deliberately meant to confuse the reader who happened upon the research And this is a side effect of living in an era where your secrets were your livelihood. Uh, In ancient Rome, the color purple, for instance, the method of procurement was kept secret as an industry trade secret by those who manufactured it. So it's certainly understandable that we don't really know to what extent alchemists were successful. But... The account that was related to me was that there was some success in metal transmutation. And it resulted in an attempted industrial scale processing of metals that, that brought about such a violent explosion. It coincided, caused, I don't know, we weren't there, uh, but the eruption of Vesuvius that buried Pompeii was directly related to this endeavor the explosion being so immense that it vaporized the evidence certainly the people in the surrounding communities not left to talk about it and if you're not uh, familiar it wasn't just pompeii there were several other villages cities surrounding that were deeply affected by this explosion Mount Vesuvius has erupted several times since then. It's not an unheard of event. Let's go back for a minute and uh, talk a little bit more about alchemy. It's referred to these days as proto-scientific. We've got history of alchemical research and practices in China, India, the Muslim world, of course Europe. A lot of the first pseudographical texts written in Greco-Roman Egypt in the first few centuries A.D. comes from alchemy. This is before Vesuvius erupted. I mean, the desire for wealth and longevity is nothing new. It's been around a long, long time. And it evolved, thankfully, into what we know today as chemistry, gave birth to what we know of what things are. I mean, if you're going to try and turn lead into gold or mercury into gold, you need to know what mercury is, what lead is, what gold is. So when I say alchemy led to chemistry, it's, it's no joke. It's, it's the beginnings. Uh, what, what fascinates me would be, what would that average Roman person know of alchemy themselves? If you were to put your mind back into ancient Rome at the time of Vesuvius's eruption, you might only know of alchemy as, oh, that's something they do to make the concrete more like stone as as we well know, the Roman concrete had additives that made it different than other forms of concrete, made it stronger, last longer, made it better, more stone-like. That would have been something a contemporary alchemist in ancient Rome would have been responsible for. Uh, making a purple dye, he would have brought in an alchemist to help with that. One of the commonalities that we can find in ancient alchemy is heat, fire. So the earliest uh, author we know of in alchemy is uh, a guy named Zosimos of Panopolis, a, uh, a Greek guy about 400 years after Vesuvius. And in his writings, he does mention other alchemists he mentions mary the prophetess also sometimes called mary the jew who is said to have been able to concoct the color purple such a wild thing to think of these days that a color was a trade secret though i guess we do have that company that owns that blackest black there is the idea you can own a color seems very silly to me, but it's an ancient idea if you're the only one who knows how to make it. So we know there were alchemists at the time and they were employed. And this is They were employed by wealthy people to get things done, whether it be making a dye for the emperor's robe or mixing up a new batch of concrete for an arch. For a bridge or a causeway or waterway, moving some water from one area to another. The Romans did some fantastic things with that concrete and moving water, but I don't think your average Roman would have been too learned in anything alchemical. Much like today, you might know a chemist, but the average person doesn't know a ton about chemistry. Reminds me of the very famous sociological experiment where they asked people if we should ban dihydrogen monoxide since it's found all over the world and it's very corrosive. When dihydrogen monoxide is nothing but water, and it is corrosive water. If you've ever seen a stream carve its way into a rock, you know, it just takes time. So, the uh, the, the Roman in the days of Pompeii would have been pretty ignorant of the fact, I think. I think they could have gotten hired on to a work crew doing alchemical processes on a grand industrial scale and not really understood what was happening other than I moved this from point A to point B. They want me to set up these lead pipes up here. But they certainly, certainly would understand heat and fire which brings us back to Vesuvius. Vesuvius itself was a mountain that was worshipped as kind of what they what they would call a genius divinity, uh, like like an aspect of Jupiter uh, or Zeus. the The essence of the god is what powered the volcano. If if fire is bursting from the volcano, you might say Jupiter's angry. Um, certainly probably had a few people attributing what was uh, going on before they died as uh, the anger and wrath of God. Uh, it's kind of hard to argue with in the moment if you're standing there and the fire mountain has spewed ash miles into the sky and <laughs> you can't get away. certainly feel like God was angry to me if I was stuck under that ash. Uh, Vesuvius itself... Uh, there's even there's even there's a story of hercules passing through the area and doing his famous labors in greek mythology and he found this hill that was vomiting fire it was said to be inhabited by giant bandits which hercules dispatched using the power of the, the gods in the pantheon and one of those non pompeii towns was even called herculaneum probably named after the incident. Uh, I know Roman, the Roman poet Marshall, he actually wrote a piece of satire in his day, and in it he suggests Venus was the patroness of Pompeii and worshipped along with Hercules. So there's definitely, definitely some, some linkage of Hercules to the area. Uh, Vesuvius itself spat fire even when it wasn't erupting. I mean, we're talking about a mountain that the ancient Greeks spoke about in their legends. I mean, whether erupting or not, it was was known to have plumes of flame flying out, would be a particularly desirous place if one needed a lot of energy, a lot of heat to fuel alchemy. Now, whether the eruption occurred directly as a result of the, these alchem- alchemical processes being done on the mountain, or just incinerated them, again, I don't know. I don't know. But as it was told to me, that it was in fact a man-made event. You know that eruption, that particular eruption. If you're not familiar with any of the particulars. We did get a description of the eruption of Vesuvius. A man named Pliny the Younger, nephew to Pliny the Elder, uh, was nearby and did write down what he saw. Now, interestingly enough, as often happened in ancient times, he wrote this years after the fact. He did not write it a few days later, a few weeks later, it was years later. Somebody said, "Maybe you should write that down." Uh, Pliny. No, oh, okay. Even as we'll get to later, even though it did kill his uncle. Let's see what he had to say. At that time, my uncle was at Mycenum in command of the fleet. About one in the afternoon, my mother pointed out a cloud with an odd size and appearance that had just formed. From that distance, it was not clear from which mountain the cloud was rising, although it was found afterwards to be Vesuvius. So he was far enough away where he couldn't even tell you at the time which mountain was erupting with ash. I find that to be interesting, intriguing to say the least. To continue, the quote, The cloud could best be described as more like an umbrella pine than any other tree. Because it rose high up in a kind of trunk and then divided into branches. I imagine that this was because it was thrust up by the initial blast until its power weakened and it was left unsupported and spread out sideways under its own weight. So, feels the need to try and explain why the ash was behaving the way he saw it. Also intriguing. Sometimes it looked light colored, sometimes it looked mottled and dirty, with the earth and ash it had carried up. Like a true scholar, my uncle saw at once that it deserved closer study and ordered a boat to be prepared. He said that I could go with him, but I chose to continue my studies." So apparently Pliny the Elder just wanted to get close enough to study it further. Just as he was leaving the house, he was handed a message from Rectina, the wife of Taskus, whose home was at the foot of the mountain and had no way of escape except by boat. She was terrified by the threatening danger, and begged him to rescue her. He changed plan at once, and what he had started in a spirit of scientific curiosity, he ended as a hero. He ordered the large galleys to be launched and set sail. He steered bravely straight for the danger zone that everyone else was leaving in fear and haste, but still kept on noting his observations. The ash, already falling, became hotter and thicker as the ships approached the coast, and it was soon superseded by pumice and blackened, burnt stone shattered by the fire. Suddenly the sea shallowed where the shore was obstructed and choked by debris from the mountain. He wondered whether to turn back, as the captain advised, but decided instead to go on. "'Fortune favors the brave,' he said. "'Take me to Pompeian Panaeus lived at Stabiae, across the Bay of Naples, which was not yet in danger, but would be threatened if it spread. Pompeianus had already put his belongings into a boat to escape as soon as the contrary onshore wind changed. This wind, of course, was fully in my uncle's favor and quickly brought his boat to Stabae. Stabae being a town nearby Pompeii. My uncle calmed and encouraged his terrified friend and was cheerful, or at least pretended to be, which was just as brave. Now, I'd like to take a moment to note here that Pliny the Younger is adding some narrative that he would not have been around to be aware of, definitely a part of storytelling and not reminiscing. He continues, Meanwhile, tall, broad flames blazed from several places on Vesuvius and glared out through the darkness of night. My uncle soothed the fears of his companions by saying that they were nothing more than fires left by the terrified peasants or empty, abandoned houses that were blazing. He went to bed and apparently fell asleep, for his loud, heavy breathing was heard by those passing his door. But eventually, the courtyard outside began to fill with so much ash and pumice that if he had stayed in his room, he, he would never have been able to get out. He was awakened and enjoyed pumping the ass, and his servants who had sat up all night They wondered whether to stay indoors or to go out into the open, because these buildings were now swaying back and forth and shaking with more violent tremors. Outside, there was the danger from the falling pumice, although it was only light and porous. After weighing up the risks, they chose the open country and tied pillows over their heads with cloths for protection. It was daylight everywhere else by this time, but they were still enveloped in a darkness that was blacker and denser than any night and they were forced to light their torches and lamps. My uncle went down to the shore to see if there was any chance of escape by the sea, but the waves were still far too high. He lay down to rest on a sheet and called for drinks of cold water. Then, suddenly, flames and a strong smell of sulfur, giving warning of yet more flames to come, forced the others to flee. He himself stood up with the support of two slaves, and then he suddenly collapsed and died, because, I imagine, he was suffocated when the dense fumes choked him. When light returned on the third day after the last day that he had seen, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed and looking more like a man asleep than dead. It's worth noting that despite the letters that Pliny the Younger wrote, these destroyed towns were eventually forgotten. Out of the common knowledge of the people in the area, Several generations later, there was just no memory of it. People stopped talking about it, and it came as a surprise when centuries later, I believe they were digging a well in Italy. Some folks digging a well found found a room and a house, and the rest is history. You can go visit Pompeii today. My favorite way to check it out, though, Pink Floyd live at Pompeii with the band. Place to the open amphitheater. Great video, great stuff. So, we know that this explosion from Mount Vesuvius was so powerful, and the ash so dark, that they needed lamps and torches in the middle of the day, where just miles away, Money the Younger himself had daylight. Certainly a terrifying event that any any Roman of the time would have attributed to the gods and not just a natural geological event. And I think it's worth taking some time to think about what life was like for your typical person living in ancient Rome before we move on to the particulars of what it would have taken to pursue a large-scale industrial alchemical Process specifically, I don't want to get into the differences between rich and poor or male and female. I mean, obviously, if you were poor, you did not have well off you were just a commoner, and obviously, if you were a female of the day, especially a poor one, you really didn't have a lot going for you it would have really been awful. Uh, there were certainly differences between Roman citizens and non-citizens reflected in in today where Roman interests might be using all of the natural resources of a nearby country, but the citizens of that country would not have Roman citizenship. Definitely parallel some things today. But I want to spend a few moments thinking about what it would be like to be born poor but brilliant. One of the reasons one might pursue alchemy, but if if you're born poor and brilliant in ancient Rome, you would need some sort of sponsorship or patron to be able to even use your smarts. Even the fact of owning paper to write on was a cost-prohibiting expense. So the alchemists themselves that would have designed their own code and language to write these things down, would have either had to come from wealth or be sponsored by wealth. There was no poor man's alchemy. So, if we assume that this happened, that there was in fact a large scale alchemical endeavor going on using the fires and heat of Vesuvius as cheap, abundant resources, it had to have been occurring. With some rich, powerful people behind it i don't I think it 's safe to assume that the alchemists themselves could have been a man or a woman, as we know from the record of Mary early alchemists if you're smart enough, even if you were a woman in ancient Rome, you might be able to get some headway. Some of mary's discoveries were used for centuries. I believe uh, she's actually credited with invent credited with inventing several kinds of chemical apparatus, considered to be the first true alchemist in the Western world. But some of her axioms are still in use today. Imagine you're a woman who has discovered how to use heat to take one metal and, for the sake of conversation, make it look like gold. Maybe, maybe it's not exactly gold, but maybe it's close enough that you can fool anybody of the day, save the smartest other alchemists. And you wanted to do it on mass. You wanted to really take advantage of this knowledge and this discovery. What better place than a mountain known for spewing fire? What better place to get your heat from? What better place to take advantage of the natural surrounding area that is nothing but ash that no one wants to go hang out in? Nobody's building a villa right on the Vesuvian mountainside, right? Now, you would definitely need the help of some nobility or some money, some rich, established patron. It's not hard to imagine... Having that knowledge and going and finding a rich patron to sponsor you and say, "Hey, I I took this mercury and uh, I made this gold, and well, if we work together, we can have as much gold as we want." Now I put some thought into it, and I do wonder: is it more likely to go to like the richest person and say you can be even more rich, or do you think it would be more effective? to go to the second richest person or the third richest person, a wealthy person that's hungry for more wealth, like really hungry for more wealth, doesn't want to rest on their laurels, hasn't said, I've got a good amount, or better yet, the progeny, the, the son of a rich noble or cousin, someone with some wealth but not having made their mark or particularly found a way to generate their own wealth outside of their family, the equivalent of the Roman trust fund baby, if you will. We, we do know that Pompeii had no shortages of rich nobles. We know that uh, nearby Oplontis was kind of a seaside resort with several villas for the rich and wealthy. We know that in Pompeii itself, a man named Elias Maius sponsored gladiator tournaments. And in fact, one of the things found in Pompeii was an advertisement. He was renting apartments. If you wanted to rent an apartment from him, you could see one of his slaves, which shows you the trust some of these rich nobles had in their slaves, the responsibility. But beyond money and resources... You would need supplies. We know that ancient Rome used lead and iron, bronze. They had metals. They had compound metals they made using alchemy. And you would need a lot of these raw materials. You need to source them. You can't just procure lead out of nowhere. You know, it's not like they had a Walmart. You could go down to where wares and goods are being bought and sold but if you wanted enough iron and lead to build something on a grand scale you can't just find it in the town square of Pompeii you know some guy just unrolls his carpet and sets up his table for the day like the farmers market or something uh, that we're talking some serious commodity exchanging here you know, you, you you would need skilled labor. You would need contractors that can build, that can use concrete, that know how to run water through pipes, build pipes, connect pipes. It, no no small affair. The, the one thing, though, uh, I don't think they used slaves as much as they would have used free workers for hire, like the independent contractors. It just would have be cheaper. If you own a slave in ancient Rome, you have to house the slave. You have to feed the slave. You have to care for the slave. If you hire a free man, they have to get their own housing. They have to buy their own food. They have to take care of their own health. Much like uh, the debate today, the fight today with Uber versus a taxi cab or Airbnb versus a hotel. It's a lot easier to farm it out to an independent contractor where you don't, as the company, you're not paying to take care of those workers. You put the onus on them. So I imagine something of this scale, slaves will be much too much too expensive. I mean, there, there may be some slaves. You'd certainly expect there to be some sort of death toll working on a mountain known to spew fire at, at random times and in random places. But the cost of slavery, I believe, that if if you break down the numbers in first century Rome, a uh, foot soldier made nine hundred sesterces, and a slave nine hundred sesterces a year, and a slave would have cost two thousand. So, in today's terms, your your average uh, army infantryman, let's say they make fifty k a year. I mean a slave would cost about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. I mean, if a slave died, you're out one hundred twenty-five thousand. If you hire an independent contractor and they die, you're out whatever you paid him until until that point. You might owe his widow something depending on the contract. Or if he doesn't have a widow, what if you're hiring youths? Hey, instead of joining the army, come work for us up on Fire Mountain. The other thing is the the mountain itself uh, in in property law in ancient Rome had public use rules and first use principles. You could easily have found uh, Roman lawyers to guide the process, but it was pretty well known. I believe it's uh, Professor Richard Epstein has some lectures on Roman law that goes into it, uh, acquiring legal use of Vesuvius, uh, which... It would just require some posting in Pompeii of, hey, publicly, nobody's using this public land, we're going to start using it, and if we use it long enough, it's ours. That's kind of how how it went down. So if we are imagining a full-scale production facility on top of a volcano built in such a location to capture as much intense heat as possible, pursuing an alchemical reaction, boiling and piping and concentrating energy. Can you picture what would happen if something went wrong? I don't know, had an intense explosion. How big would that explosion have to be to open up the volcano to a full-on eruption? Those sights seen by Pliny the Younger, Ash billowing upwards, how different would it be? If the eruption had been caused by something going terribly wrong in an industrial enterprise versus a natural eruption, and if there were some rich nobility behind such an enterprise that maybe had some public postings of what they were doing, maybe maybe they'd be scared enough to try and rush the town to remove those public postings. Maybe... They might do so under the guise of saving a friend. Maybe they might do so under the guise of scientific study. Pliny the Elder was explained to have been doing by Pliny the Younger. I don't think it's too big of a jump to imagine these men being involved with such an enterprise. It indeed happened, as it was told to me. Certainly anyone working at the mountain would have been incinerated. This explosion buried a city. Imagine being on the mountain itself when it happened. You're just atomized. You're gone. It's done. And we're talking about an event that removed knowledge of the city itself. How hard would it be to also remove knowledge of any particular thing happening around that city if it wasn't written down? like the renting of an apartment. If Pliny the Elder succeeded in removing the public notices, we would have no way of knowing or verifying the transmutation of metals on a grand scale in such a place, such a time. Even if such things had been written down in code, saved for posterity, made their way to the library at Alexandria, that library itself lost so much information over the years. So that's how it was told to me that uh, an industrial scale attempt to turn mercury into gold using molten magma at Mount Vesuvius led to one of the greatest disasters ancient Rome ever saw, and that the very records of it that we would have had access to. They themselves fell into nothing. And we will get to talking about the library at Alexandria next time. But for now, I'd just like to finish up saying, I don't know if they turned Mercury into gold on Mount Vesuvius all those years ago. But that's how it was told to me. And I'm your narrator, Dan. And this has been another Conspiracy History. We'll be back at you soon talk about how books in the Library of Alexandria didn't quite make it to the modern day.